Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today to worship the Lord together. Thank you for your faithfulness to God. Interesting subject this morning. A lot of the songs we sang this morning had to say something about our eyes. Um, it has become a, a reality with me that the older I get, the less my eyes are good. <laughs> the more I need to, to lean on my glasses. But I, I remember... Uh, I remember reading early on in my ministry what others had written about their life in, in service for the Lord. And, and so often I would read that the longer that they were in ministry, the, the less they felt adequate for the task. Uh, the more that God revealed to them how far they still had yet to go to become all that God wanted them to be. And I confess that to you this morning. I so much want to be everything God wants me to be. Some days when I wake up, I just don't feel like I'm there. And uh, I think that's, that's good that the Lord reveals that to us and shows us what he sees. He wants the best for us, right? He wants to encourage us and help us to achieve spiritual greatness in his eyes because he wants to bless us going to be talking about King David this morning and as Ronnie mentioned earlier King David was a great man of God but he was also a man who struggled with fear he was prone like us to worry about things and as I look at you I wonder what are you worried about what have you worried about this week what have you struggled with I'm sure there are things I I know there are things that you worry about things that seize your mind and and even things that will rob you of sleep, there are those things in all of our lives, uh, some more than others. But we know that David struggled with fear because his life was in constant danger. You wouldn't think that of a king, but it was. Someone was always trying to kill him, kind of like what Putin was trying to do with Zelensky. Uh, always putting some assassins out there to try to take his life and and David understood that he he felt that way that was what was going on with him the thought of dying filled his mind with anxious worry uh, being the leader that he was he had a lot of enemies and that makes for a very lonely life you find yourself always being on the move there's no rest for the weary there's not much peace and if that were not enough to cause him to have sleepless nights, he also struggled with his guilt, which was simply the result of some bad choices that he made in his life, which led him to sin. And, and one, of the, one of the verses that has um, meant so much to me, because I found myself there so many times, Psalms 51, verse 1 through verse 3, where he cried out to God and he said, God, have mercy on me. Because of your unfailing love. Not because I deserve your mercy. Not because I've done anything to earn that. But because you love me with a love that's unfailing. I need you to have mercy on me, God. Notice he said, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. He couldn't go to sleep without thinking about those things that he failed the Lord in. And so he, he was asking God, make me, Lord, make me acceptable to you. 
In another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 25, we, we find words that David wrote into this song that came directly from a dire situation in his life. It just so happened that one of David's enemies turned out to be his own son. Can you imagine that? Absalom, a young man that rebelled against his father, not only wanting his throne, but literally wanting his life. Psalms 25, verse 1, David said, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Another translation says, O Lord, I give my life to you. I, I give everything that I am, Lord. I, I give it to you. I lay it out there for you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced, but Disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Notice verse 4. He wrote, show me the path where I should walk, O Lord. Point out the road, the right road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. Notice that's plural. Not, not just one time did God save him, but many times David was saved by God. He said, all day long I put my hope in you. Show me the path where I should walk. You see, he needed God's help to avoid those many assassins who were waiting in the, the, the shadows to take his life. Abraham Lincoln once said, I, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to turn. What drives you to your knees? What would you do if your own son were trying to kill you? I, I, I can't even make my mind go there. It's hard to imagine that. David, like so many of us, he didn't know what to do. But praise God, he did the right thing and he turned to God. He, he went to God. And, and for David, I want you to understand, that wasn't the last thing that he did. That was the first thing he did. And it should be the first thing that we do. You see, the Lord needs to be and wants to be the very first thing in our life. David teaches us in this psalm that there are three things that we must do if God's going to lead us through our fears and our worries. Three things. Simple things, but not necessarily easy things. Three things we need to do. First, you need to turn loose of what you want. Turn loose of what you want. He said... Show me the path where I should walk, O Lord. Point out the, the right road for me to follow. In other words, direct my life. Uh, another translation says, show me your ways. Teach me your path. David had no problem with and in fact wanted God to lead his life. It was very important for him. But you know what? Most people aren't interested in following God. We're not. So many times we really don't want God to show us where he wants us to go or what he wants us to do. What most people want is for God to approve and bless what we want and what we're already doing. We want God to rubber stamp our life and say, that a boy, you're doing a good job. I hope I don't shock you too bad by saying this, but <laughs> that's not the way God works, is it? Only when God sees and that, that with our heart, that we really want to follow him, will he take the lead in our life? What God wants for us is the absolute best. His ways are always better than our ways. 
there's a whole lot less worry, things to worry about and, and to fear when we do things his way. Uh, Romans 8.28, I don't usually use the living translation, but I'm, I'm going to, or the paraphrase, I, I am going to do it today because I want to give you something just a little bit different to think about. He says, we know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans, if we're walking in his way, if we're walking on his path. So we need to give up some things. We need to also take up his will and surrender ours. He says, lead me by your truth and teach me for you are the God who saves me. In the big scheme of things, God's will is always far better than our will. We don't know what is best for us. God's will is a part of his master plan and he has some wonderful, beautiful things for us in that plan. You know what? God never promised us the health and wealth that a lot of people preach about. Uh, he never promised us those things if we follow him. What he wants is for us to follow him no matter what happens in our life. And David was okay with that. He wanted God to lead him through life. Not just today and not just yesterday, but all the way through his life. Something else that we need to learn to do is to trust God and to wait on his timing. That's what David did. He said, on you I wait all day long. I wait all day long. You see, that's one of those places where we fail God. We fail ourselves. We, we seem to fail because sometimes our fears get the best of us. And too often we become impatient and we make decisions without letting the Lord guide us. And then when things don't turn out because of the decisions we made, we want to blame God, right? <laughs> We have a bad habit of complaining when things go wrong. Arden Taylor wrote that. He said, remember that God is never in a hurry. Why would the God of eternity be in a hurry? <laughs> He's not on our time schedule. God's never in a hurry, and waiting on God is never a waste of time. Sometimes we need to just be still and listen. If you want God to help you through those fears and worries that you have, you need to turn loose of what you want. You need to take up his will and trust God and wait on his timing. It is so critical that we do that. I know that's easy to say, but it's hard to live. It's hard to do that. For so many people, this world has turned out to be a, a very scary place. And if you don't believe me, just, just talk to people. Just stop and listen, engage people where they are, and you'll find that there are a lot of people that are consumed and drowning in fear and worry. As I sat and thought about this week, uh, that particular subject, I, I realized, and, and, and I, it's not new, it's not a brand new revelation, but so much of what we worry about, we really can do nothing about. It's beyond our control. I mean, just stop and think about it. How, how much of control do we really have over government on any level really very little can can you keep putin from loading up one of his nuclear warheads on one of those supersonic missiles and firing it can, can you stop him from doing that I, I, none of us can can you control the price of gas or the stock market or the cost of food or Supply shortage? Can you control any of that? Can any of us control what other people do? So often I can't even control what I do. 
Listen, you may not be able to control things that you fear. But you can control how you respond when you're tempted to be afraid. You can overcome the temptation to be afraid. You say, but Brother Andy, how do you do that? Well, I want to point you to a psalm. It's it's an interesting passage of Scripture. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. And I want you to see that this passage teaches us that we don't have to be afraid because God has his angels in place to protect us. Not superheroes, <laughs> not transformers, but angels. And we don't think about that. There may be angels, and I suspect that there are in this room right now. Some of your angels may have come to worship with you this morning. You don't even know they're there. You don't know they exist. You don't, you don't think about that. But listen to what the psalmist wrote he says for God orders his angels to protect us wherever we go they will hold you with their hands to keep you from striking your foot on a stone that is a subject that is a thought that we probably need to explore and understand more than we do The Bible teaches us that if we have made God our refuge, if he is our our strong place, if he is is our Lord like we should make him Lord, then he has commissioned his angels to watch over us. That is their job. And that means that as believers, we, we all have angels divinely assigned to protect us and strengthen us from spiritual dangers. I I am sure that when we get to heaven that we're going to find out that those angels have been really busy and they have kept us from so much danger and toil and snare that that we can't even begin to imagine all the times that they have delivered us. Now, we know those times we have close calls, but how many times have you had close calls that you don't even know you had? That angels kind of just plucked you from the fire and from danger and you're not even aware of that. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 The writer said, but angels are only servants. Angels. Not a myth. Real created beings that have a task. They are servants of the Lord. They are spirits sent from God to care for those, for us, who will receive salvation. There's a really interesting event chronicled in the Old Testament. Where there was this enormous Armenian army that surrounded the city of Dothan. That is a city not in Alabama, but in, in the Holy Land. <laughs> and, and it just so happened that Elisha the prophet was there, but he surprisingly unaffected by the show of force of this army. By all rights, he should have been afraid, but he's not. He wasn't. But his servant Gehazi, on the other hand, when he saw the multitude of soldiers and horses and chariots, he was absolutely terrified. 2 Kings 6.15 talks about that. It says Elijah's service got up one morning early, and, and when he went out, he saw the army of horses and chariots all around the city. And, and he said to his, to his prophet, his master, Oh, my master, what can we do? What are we going to do? We're in a mess. How in the world are we going to ever fix this? It amazes me how calm the prophet was. And in verse 16, we see that he says, well, just don't be afraid. (laughs) The army that fights for us is larger than the one that is against us. And then he prayed these words, Lord, open my servant's eyes and let him see. 
And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and and chariots of fire all around the prophet. What was he looking at? God's heavenly angelic army. God gave this servant the ability to see what normally is not seen. And that is God's heavenly army just waiting to do battle with the enemy. They were armed. They were mounted on their horses, ready to do battle, ready to go to war. While Gehazi couldn't see this massive army that was encamped around the city, Elijah perceived a far greater spiritual reality, and that was simply this, that God was already there. He was already fighting to win the battle for them. So how was Elijah able to control his fears and worries? A couple thoughts. First of all, he clearly understood how God works for his people. He had an understanding that God is always busy working for us, taking care of us. He also was confident that God uh, already had things under control. Charles Stanley says there is an unseen reality. An unseen reality. The spiritual perspective of the situation that you are facing that is far different from what you perceive with human eyes. You may see so many problems lined up against you that you feel absolutely helpless, but that's not how God sees your situation. He's just waiting on you to acknowledge his victory of faith. Why don't we do that? Why don't we give God the credit for what he's doing? Why don't we give God the glory that he deserves? What is there to fear when our God is in control? What we all need to do is trust God to fight and win our battles. And then we need to praise Him and honor Him. Lord, open up our eyes so that we may see who you are and what you're doing for us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, how we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. Powerful passage. We need to thank God for the victories that he's already given and made possible for us. Friends, how we respond to the attacks of Satan is a critical element in our effort to to grow in our relationship with the Lord. We can respond in fear or we can respond in faith. Trust me, fear is far better than, our faith is far better than fear. Now, fear is not of God. Fear is a tool that the devil uses. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul wrote, For God has not, uh, not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That is a special verse of Scripture. I, I tell people all the time, if, if you're afraid, who put that fear in you? Not, not God. It certainly had to come from the enemy. That's who gives us fear. Responding in faith helps you to overcome your fears when you place all of your trust in Jesus. Now, why is that important? Why can that happen? It's because God loves you. And I don't think we understand that. I don't think we understand how big... You know, we use the word love so, so many times that we, it, it's, it's lost its meaning. But God loves you with an unending love, a faithful love that will never fail you. And, and Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter, 30, or chapter 8, verse 35. Listen to what he wrote. Can anything ever separate you from us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted? 
or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death. Even the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. I wonder how many Christians are losing their life in Ukraine right now. I shared with a few of you the other day that Ukraine, from what I've read, has the second largest number of Christian churches in the world next to America. I never knew that till about three weeks ago. What's happening to the church in that country? What's happening to God's people? They're being killed every day. And God knows that. Somehow that's a part of his will. I don't understand everything. But I do know this. I know where they go when they die. I know where we go when we die. And I know this is temporary at best. The best is yet to come. Amen. Notice verse 37. He said, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. He said, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Your death can't. Life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your unending love. Thank you, Lord, for your unfailing love for me, for, for all of us, for all who believe and trust in you. The Apostle John wrote, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in him. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Notice that. The longer we live in God and the closer we get to God, the more the love that we have for each other and for Him is perfected because the more it becomes like the love that God has for us. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face Him with confidence because we are like Christ here in this world. Notice verse 18. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful verse. He said such love, the kind of love that God is growing in us, has no fear because perfect love does what? It expels all fear. All fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of judgment. And this shows that his love has not yet been perfected in us. In other words, we've not grown the love of Christ in us to the point that it needs to be. We love each other as a result of his loving us First. Now, there are two things I don't want you to miss on this passage. And the first is this. Because Jesus loves you, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. His love is so powerful and his promises are so true, he's going to take care of you no matter what. So don't fear anything. I think there's another passage that says, what can man do to me? <laughs> nothing that God can't take care of. Another thought is that because Jesus loved us first, he should be our first love. He should be our first love. That reminds me that there's one more thing that you can do to control your anxiety and fear. 
And that is simply you can choose to establish the right priority in your life. Get your priorities straight, in other words. Tony Evans says, much of your life, whether it shows up in success or failure, will be determined by your priorities. What you put first in your thoughts, desires, and choices will pretty much affect everything in your life. So priorities determine outcome. I, I find it rather interesting that the longest sermon that Jesus preached that is recorded in the Bible takes up three chapters of Matthew's gospel. Three chapters. You better pack a lunch when you read that one. What if I did that? You'd be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon, maybe longer. But what's interesting is while this is a very long sermon, it can be summed up in just a single verse. Matthew 6, 33. My theme verse, my favorite verse. Before I read it, I want to tell you that the context of this verse is all about God's kingdom rule in your life, everywhere, throughout his kingdom, throughout his universe. The centerpiece of his kingdom is living together under his rule. And the single word that captures the focus of this verse is the word first, F-I-R-S-T, first. With that in mind, let's read this verse, Matthew 6, 33. Notice the third word, but seek what? First. Circle that word first. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, all the things that you need will be given to you as well. Again, let's focus on this word first. What does it mean? It means first. <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. It, it simply means first. Before all others. It doesn't mean second or third or last. It is not a word that is synonymous with leftover either. To be honest, most people tend to read this word and then move on as if it's not there or like it's not that important. But someone said, to diminish the value of this word leads to the diminishing of the experience of God in many of our lives. In other words, make little of this word and it'll cost you. It'll affect your life. Make much of it. Put it in the right priority in your life, and you will be blessed beyond measure. Again, Tony Evans said, to live life to the fullest and to accomplish and experience all that God has created you to do, God and his kingdom must be first. God is not to be one among many. He is to be first. You can't seek God's kingdom and his righteousness until you first seek God. First must be first, right? Well, Brother Randy, how do I know if I'm putting God and his kingdom first in my life? You guys ask such good questions. Well, let me ask you a question. When you need to make a decision... An important decision. Maybe it's not such an important decision, but it's just a decision. Where do you go for help first? Who do you turn to? Who do you get advice from? Who do you ask for help? You know what? Most Christians, listen to me, most Christians use God as a backup plan, and we only go to Him when everybody else fails us. 
I often hear people say that uh, they just don't have enough time for God in their week or, or for church. I was talking to a lady not long ago, and she said, you know, I work, I work five and six days a week, and when I get up on Sunday morning, I just want to sleep in. I want to drink coffee and just lay around. I had another guy say, well, I don't, I don't have time to go to church on Sunday. I got to cut the grass, and I got to wash the car, and I got to get things ready for the work week, and you know, I, I just don't have time to go to church. I, I never have enough time to sit down and read my Bible and, and pray. I, I don't have time for prayer. When I hear those kind of things, what people are really telling me is that God's not a priority in their life. It, it, it's saying I, I have more important things to do with my time. I have more important things to do with my money. I I, I'm already volunteering here and there, so I don't have extra time to, to go and help out around the church. I'm just too busy for God. Listen, you know and I know that a person always has time for and gives to what is most important to us, right? So the things that we really care about, they, they're the ones that get the majority of our time and our energy and our effort. And that's a fact, but that can be a problem with God. I also have noticed that we tend to only sacrifice for those things that are the greatest of our priorities. We don't sacrifice a lot. But when we do, it's got to be high on our list. Or we're not going to make those sacrifices. Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, some interesting words. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. He's writing to you guys. He said, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will accept. What good is it to offer God a sacrifice that he doesn't accept? You want it to be the right kind, right? He said, when you think of what he's done for you, is that too much to ask? In verse 2, he said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. And then you will know what God wants you to do. And you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. In my study this week, I came to see again, not the first time, but a fresh understanding that there is yet another problem that Christians sometimes have. You see, there, there are a great many believers who make a decision to become Christians by, by trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who have not yet made the decision to become a disciple. They are definitely people who want to go to heaven when they die. That's a high priority on their list. And they would even like to shortcut death by being a part of the rapture of the church, if the Lord were to do that before they die, they would be in for that. But there are many who have not surrendered their lives in such a way so as to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me about this question. What is the difference? What is the difference between a person who has made a decision to accept Christ and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Is there a difference? What is that difference? I think we would all agree that both are saved, but if you study and dig deep, you'll find that only one is surrendered. Both are going to wind up in heaven, but only one is truly benefiting from their relationship to Jesus Christ in this life. So 
look with me again at what Paul is trying to teach us in this passage of Scripture where he says, I plead with you. I, I plead with you. I beg you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will accept. What does he mean? What is he trying to tell us? What does he say? I think that he's telling us that God wants us to give ourselves to him completely. God wants you to put yourself on his altar. God wants you to put your life, all that you are, on his altar. God wants you to surrender your life to him. What a concept. If you've read through the Old Testament, then you have read that when a priest would place an animal on a sacrifice, as a sacrifice on an altar, that that priest would go in and he wouldn't just put the head or the feet or the hide or the internal organs of that animal on the altar. No, he would put the whole animal on the altar to be offered to God as a whole burnt offering. He would bring that whole animal and he would place it on the altar. That kind of sacrifice requires a lot, right? It requires everything. It was a complete sacrifice of the animal to God. Uh, you didn't just give God the parts of the animal that you didn't want or the parts of the animal that you couldn't eat. You put your whole animal on the altar. You gave everything to God. You had to completely give up that animal. It no longer was yours. It became the property of God. And from that point on, it would always belong to him and to him alone. Friends, I believe that there are way too many of us who only give a portion of our time and our talent and our treasure on God's altar. And then we assume that that is enough. What do you think about that? Better question is, what does God think about that? What does God really want from us? What does God want? I think he wants you. He wants me. I tell people all the time when you pray and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. You get all of God at that point. You get every bit of God. All of God comes to dwell in you. You don't get part of him now as a down payment and part of him later when you achieve a certain level. No, you get all of God. But here's the problem. He doesn't quite have all of us yet. That is a process. That is a spiritual journey. We need to turn more and more of our life over to him. You know, you find through Scripture, throughout Scripture, that that any time that God is getting ready to do something really great and amazing among his people, he always requires a sacrifice. You see, there had to be something given to God first to demonstrate sincerity and commitment to God. And then God would show up and he would bless his people. You see it over and over and over in Scripture. There's a great example in, in Second Chronicles where Solomon is finishing up the work of the temple of God. And he's getting that work finished, Second Chronicles 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And it tells us there that when the, when the temple is finished, it's ready to be dedicated to the Lord, that he has the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem to be put in the temple. He also summons all the elders of Israel and the heads of tribes and, and the leaders of the ancestral families of that nation. 
And in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, it says King Solomon and the entire community, not just the leaders, but the nation, they sacrificed sheep and oxen before the ark in such numbers that no one could count them. After that, the ark is placed into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And there was a time of singing and worship and praising God like you could never imagine. Hmm. And then in chapter 6, Solomon stands before the people. And he prays a prayer of dedication for this new facility to God. And they're dedicating it to God and to the work of God. And, and they're praising their awesome God. And then notice in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 what happened said when Solomon finished praying that fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not even enter the temple of the Lord because of the glorious presence of the Lord because it filled that temple. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and they worshiped and they praised the Lord saying, He is so good. His faithfulness endures forever. If God were to do something like that in a Baptist church, I'd be preaching a bunch of funerals. It'd scare us to death. There's no better place to be than in the presence of God. I pray that when you come here on Sunday, you don't come here for me. I pray that you come here to find God and meet God and engage God. Verse 4, if you read on in that chapter, tells us that the king and all the people offered more sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Because they could not give God enough for who he was and what he was doing in they were giving God everything. Everything. Have you done that? Have you given God all of yourself? That's a good question to ask ourselves from time to time. You know, the, 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 the tough thing about living sacrifices is that sometimes we put ourselves on the altar and then we get off. Yeah. A living sacrifice can crawl off the altar and sometimes we do. Is there a part of your life that you haven't yet surrendered to the Lord? You know, there, if, if you're being honest like I have to be honest, there, there, there are times when we'll give God this part of our life, but when we go, you know, this, this is off limits over here, God. You can have this, and I'll give you all of that, but when I'm going to hang on to this over here. Someone told me a long time ago that we need to, to hold the things that God has put into our care very loosely. Because in honesty, they belong to God. We need to be willing to turn loose of things. Because God wants us. He doesn't want our things. He wants us. But often it's those things that we hold that get in our way between us and God. We have to let go of them so that we can focus on Him. Have you given everything to God? Have you? I was reading 
numerous passages of scripture the other day and I ran across some words by Isaiah the prophet. Listen to what he said. Oh, that you would burst forth from heaven and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. We have a lot of nations that need to tremble, right? Yeah. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome things beyond our highest expectation. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who cheerfully do good and who follow godly ways.